Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the Celtic Soul Podcast with me, Andrew Millen. You're all very welcome to episode 20. It's good to be back. My guest on the show will be teacher, writer, columnist and former IRA prisoner Paddy McMenamin. This episode has been sponsored by Murray and Son coach her, Dalik. Thanks to Christy, Michael and all the team for getting us to and from the games over the past 20 years. Ah, it's good to be back after a staycation. Ronan, the producer, was off down in Wexford and I was in Waterford and we both realised how beautiful our country is and how much it rains. While we were away enjoying points, once we ordered a meal, Celtic sent us off on a vacation or staycation in good form. A 5-1 win against Hamilton and we were all buzzing. Then we go to Kilmarnock and the wheels come off the bus. Same old problem. Defenders bullied and we give away a penalty. Don't want to single out anyone, but I think we all know who's guilty on this occasion. But overall, the team were poor. Chris Bork was probably the best player on the pitch and and it pains me to say it. But look, we all thought we'd bounce back against St Mirren and then Bolangali, what a tool, goes to Spain for 24 hours, comes back, doesn't tell the gaffer, doesn't tell his teammates, plays 10 minutes in the game, puts everyone at risk after the Aberdeen idiots. So now we have a Celtic idiot, lets the whole team down, the fan base down. Now Nicholas Sturgeon has given us a yellow card, the next will be a red. These footballers really need to cop themselves on. Yes, 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 we all want to get out. I'd love to go to Spain because it'd be warmer than Waterford was. But I can't. I can't get to Glasgow. I can't get in to watch a football match. But if I have any hope of getting in, I need professional footballers to be professional. Now, we've had a bit of good news. We've signed Albie, a Yeti, from West Ham. I have to say I don't know a lot about the striker. Was the striker a priority? It's good to get one in, especially with Griff in Griff mode. But I think maybe we could have done getting in a defender. The two boys in the centre positions, they're not being pushed. Bolangali's actions now, Taylor has no one to push him. We need strength at the back. I spoke to someone close to the dugout and they said Duffy is on the list. He'd be an ideal fit. But there's others on the list and there's a lot of negotiations still to be done. We need players in. We need to beat this crowd from Iceland and we need to go for the 10. We need to get serious and so does the players. So folks, by the next time we play, hopefully we'll be in the next round of the Champions League 
and we'll also be looking forward to getting back to a league game. My guest today is Paddy McMenamin. Paddy was born in Belfast in 1953. He lived in loyalist areas, initially the Tigers Bay and the Annadale Flats, before moving to Tough Lodge in 1962. Paddy is a writer, podcaster and a regular contributor to more than 90 minutes Celtic fanzine. At 58 years old, he became a school teacher after returning to full-time education and he is a former IRA prisoner. The conversation just flowed today when I spoke to Paddy. So enjoy the first part and we will bring you the second part on Tuesday. Paddy, you're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast. Firstly, I would like to thank you for your contributions to our Celtic fans in over the years and helping us to keep producing quality independent articles on Celtic at a time when quantity seems more important than quality for many of the click and bait websites. You seem happy to take copy from The Sun and The Record and Dead Masquerade as Celtic fan independent websites. Paddy, how have you been keeping since the lockdown and how's it been up in Galway? And are you returned to some kind of normality? Yeah, things, things are good, Andy. First, uh, thanks very much for inviting you on to the podcast and uh, following luminaries like Frank McAvenny and, and people like that, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, things are okay, you know. I mean, it was a bit of a bummer like it is for us. I mean, this year has been, it's been, it's been a desperate year and we had the three-month lockdown and obviously, you know, I play a lot of golf. Thankfully, the golf was one of the first sporting uh, things that was allowed back. So we had only two months off the golf. But our clubhouse, uh, they've changed owners in the last year. Uh, we don't have the clubhouse, so we're actually just on the course and that's it, which is, isn't isn't great. But it's good, you know, I'm out. I mean, I had a few health problems in the last couple of years. Open heart surgery, brain hemorrhage, survived. And uh, I'm, I'm okay, you know. But unfortunately, my partner, Mary, uh, after the lockdown, she got two games of golf in and she was gardening out the back and she fell and done her the top of her shoulder, fractured it. She's on a sling for three months. So it's a bit there's no golf and uh, she wasn't able to drive for the first two months there. But um but you know, we're we're getting on okay, you know. Some amount of people come onto this podcast talking about golf. Alan Thompson, John Hudson. You'll have to get a game with them sometime. <laughs> I'd love to actually after after Seville they had a big golf, one of these golf dudes here, and um, there were six of them over Lenny and uh, Alan Thompson, Paul Lambert, uh, and a few others. And now the golf was a bit out of my league. It was a, like it was it was big money, you know, and it was more more a, a business thing. But but then in Claren Bridge, a wee village not far from here, they had a they had a night, a Celtic night, and and all the boys were there, you know, and we, we, we were chatting to Lenny for a good while, you know, and. The, but they were, they were golfing that day, you know. Well, as always, Lenny's in the news every week. And this week, it's the Bollingolly story. Now, I, wanted to, I do want to touch on it, but then I want to draw a line under it. And, let, and yeah. I want to let the club deal with this because, uh, as I said, you know, as I wrote during the week, he just needs a boot in the balls. What a letdown and a kick in the balls to all the fans, especially after the Aberdeen fiasco. Uh, yeah. We've waited so long to get back, even watching football on the television. And for this little spoiled child to go off and do this, it's just, I'm fuming. And I'm sure everybody else is because I was raging when I thought, when I thought the prospect of football without fans and not being able to watch Celtic. But I've slowly warmed to it. That I've something to look forward to now every couple of days. And I was really looking forward to the Samirin game after the disappointment of the Kilmarnock game. Where do you sit on the ball and golly thing and Johnny Hayes at Aberdeen and the likes of these players? Yeah, I mean, uh, I totally agree with what you're after saying. I might uh, 
I might have a, maybe a, a, a nicer euphemism than a kick, a kick in the balls. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, it's it's allow a wee bit. Although he's twenty five, he's not just a kid. It's it's difficult to have my own grandchildren, eighteen, first year at college, and I know it's difficult for them. Um, but I mean, a pampered footballer earning big money, and he, and he does this, and he and he messes up, and. I mean, I agreed completely with Nicola Sturgeon. She says, this is a yellow card. The next time it's a red card, football will be banned completely. And I mean, for him to put us in that position, you know, and especially after the Aberdeen guys, you know, foolishly going into the pub. and the t- I mean, it's ridiculous, you know. He, he should have had more cap on, you know. I just think that to fly for 24 hours to Spain, you know, oh, like we'd all love to go to Spain, even for, even for 24 hours. But unfortunately, we can't. And he shouldn't have. But as I said, Paddy, I want to draw a line under it because yeah. people have wrote about it now for a couple of days and we need to move on. We've made a new sign, brought in the boy from West Ham. But the, the, the striking position isn't a worry for me unless Edward was to leave. I think we, we have serious problems in defence. AR and Julian, not only do they need to toughen up, but they need competition from other players to push them for a starting place. And they own the jersey at the moment. There's no one there pushing them. Livingston last season showed showed them up, and again this year against Kilmarnock, they've been bullied. You know, you, you never would have seen a Martin O'Neill centre half been bullied. Now there's talk of a Shane Duffy coming, and I hate speculating about players, but I have spoken to someone that's close to the dugout, and he has said he's on the list, but he's on a long list. So they are actively looking to sign centre halves, but also with Johnny Hayes out of the picture now as well. Greg Taylor has no competition now with Bolingali's actions. So with the, the right back, okay, with Frimpom oh, and we have El Hamid, but across the back, with no cover. Yeah, I wasn't over impressed with with uh, some of the, the, the big Julian and some of the stuff, you know, and 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 air when he goes wandering at times. But when I heard about Shane Duffy, I know it's only speculation, and you know sometimes they're getting so much dodge down in, in in England that you know it's difficult. But I think he'd be a great addition. He reminds me of Mick McCarthy coming and in uh, the centenary season, you know, and, and the same sort of tough, sort of rugged centre-half that takes no prisoners. And I, I think Duffy would would be a brilliant signing, you know, if we could get him even on loan for a year, you know. Yeah, I'd love uh, to see him coming. I, I did see him in Celtic Park. He was up for one of the Champions League games, I think, about maybe two seasons ago, maybe three. So he's, he, he's definitely been up now. I've heard he's, you know, every time there's an Irish player linked, we hear our big Celtic fans, but... There was a wee clip there at the weekend. He was at a he was at a function in Derry, and they all started singing um, some Celtic songs and stuff, you know. And he joined in, you know. I don't know where you were reading about it. Just before the news broke um, that that Celtic were linked to him, you know. But uh, yeah, he'd be a good. He, he definitely would be a good. I'm just a wee bit worried, you know, about this year that because I remember '75, you know, when we run out of steam for the the last time for ten row. We remember '98. You know when the teddy bears run out of steam in the last year, and I mean we're geared up for this year, but it looks like now with these matches cancelled, they could be ten points ahead right away, and maybe have this lead on us for a while. And then that you can gather momentum, you know. And I mean, if we're going into to after New Year and they're level with us, it's going to be even though I know last year they were and they messed up, but I think this year they're a bit stronger and. You know, they, they could give us a run for our money and, and Christ knows, you know, how it could pan out come May, you know. 
Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully history doesn't repeat itself because it's just such a historical season. Yeah. Now, Paddy, I want to rewind and I want to take you back to Belfast. I want to take you back to your childhood and your formative teenage years and how you started to follow football and what teams you followed. Well, first of all, my parents were, my mum was Donegal, my dad was Tyrone, moved to Belfast post-World War II for, for, for work. Whereas all her, her three sisters all headed to Glasgow, Clyde Bank, Ayla Butte, as all the Donegal people do. Mommy said she would follow them, but she'd met my dad and he suggested Belfast. So they ended up in Belfast for the next 60 years. Um, I always say mom and dad didn't do very well in geography at school because they landed in Tigers Bay, first of all, which became <laughs> a, a tough loyalist area during the conflict. Then they moved uh, to Annadale over on the, off the Armour Road, which became another loyalist haunt and a, a place, um, Johnny Adair, the lucky escape. He, as the boys come in the front door, he bailed out a second floor window one time and escaped, you know. So, but in 62, um, we moved across to Turf Lodge, which was a new estate next to Bally Murphy, between that Bally Murphy and Andersonstown. You know, there was no, um, there was no troubles in a sense. There'd been no trouble really since, since the, since the end of the War of Independence, you know, the, there was a, a border campaign, 56 to 62, which is a damn squib, really. There was really, you know, republicanism was at a low ebb, so there was nothing that my parents, there was no politics in the family, so that was never an issue anyway. But, but I mean, as kids, um, in Annadale, the only, and not all our, all our neighbours and friends were all, were all Protestant families and uh, with no problem, and I played with the kids, and uh, as you do when you're nine. And the only time was uh, the last year I was there on the 12th, and the kids, the friends said, come up, they were building the bone fair. And I went up to the bone fair, and of course, there was about Goldie, about 15, and and he says, you know, F off, you fiendian bastard. <laughs> so I, I trooped down dejectedly, you know, wondering what was, what was a fiendian bastard. <laughs> I hadn't a clue, you know. So that was the only thing. We moved to Turf Lodge, and then... The mid sixties, uh, you know, past eleven plus, went to St Mary's, a grammar school, was set up to go to university, but but it wasn't going to happen. Um, the first friends I had, a uh, guy Jimmy Bell, he was from East Belfast, um, and my dad wasn't a football man, so there was no football in our house, and uh, but we were playing on the streets as you do, and uh, and Jimmy Bell said want to go over a few of us to Glen Torn over at the Oval in East Belfast. That, that was his team. That's where he grew up. And in 65, we, we went over and they ended up at times that made have been a dozen of us. All, all sort of, I hate using religious terms, but all Catholic kids, nationalist kids. And we were in the middle of the Glen Torn support, which were 90% loyalists. They weren't Linfield now. And, you know, they had a different sort of, but they were 90% loyalists. But we were going from 65 to 69. And not once did anybody ever say booties. They actually sometimes, when sometimes they would start singing the side, some of them would say, oh, boys, he's off, you know, our friend, the boys are here. And the only trouble we had is when Linfield came calling and, and we would join with the rest of the boys and, and fighting the Linfield crowd, you know, that we always, in the end days, they used to swap ends, you know, I don't know where they ever done it in Scotland in the old days, but the, the, the crowds weren't as big, so that you'd be at one end in the first half, the end your team was, and then you would swap, you know, to, to the second half and the support would go to the other end. So the Linfield always had bigger support and they were coming through and there'd be a bit of a battle at half time. But uh, come 69, 
when things kicked off uh, after after um, Duke Street and Derry in '68, and then the PD march did, from Belfast to Derry, and you know the stuff was happening. And I left school, messed up a wee bit, and went to work in a bar. My uncle's at a pub in Donegal, so the bar seemed a natural thing. And I was working in a city centre bar, and oh, a lot of stuff was happening on the streets. And it was before August, 69, June or something, July. And another young barman from the Falls, and he, and he approached me one day and he showed me the paper, and there was something happened. It turned out that it was actually a UVF bomb or something, but it, the paper was blaming the rat. And he says to me, you know, what do you think of this? No, and I says, geez, well, I haven't a clue, but anything like that. And he says, I could introduce you to people who could, you know, explain things. And uh, so anyway, uh, not realizing, but he was recruiting for the FENA, which was the IRA youth movement, you know, founded by Karandis Markovich in, in, uh, in 1912, you know. And uh, so he, re- he recruited me and... At this stage, had you, had you been... I, I know you, sp- you spoke... Oh, sorry, you wrote before about attending your first match, your Celtic match in yeah. Dublin. Yeah. Was this around that time or was this? That was around the same time. Uh, I think it was May 69. And about the same group of us, all uh, all we football friends, probably the same guys that were going over to the Oval. We Celtic played Rovers at Tolka, I think. And we all jumped on the train and went down, went to the match. And I think it finished two each. Did Jimmy Bell go with us? He probably did, but I can't remember. Um, but it was all the group. He probably did, you know. But a few of the boys that went, um, unfortunately, were killed in the conflict. Mickey Kearney was killed in an NLA feud later on. Kevy McCracken, who became my brother-in-law, was shot dead by the Brits. The night the Gibraltar three were coming home. Uh, Norman Campbell was shot by the UVF working on a building site in the Shankle. And they were all there that time you know and um and a, and a lot of the other ones all ended up um, on holidays courtesy of her majesty all during the 70s as well but we landed down we went to the match and then um, we, we had no money and we weren't drinking much uh, we had no money anyway and but we came back and uh, the last train had left for belfast so we had to sleep in, the, in a rough sleep in the station till to get the, the, the train in the morning back to belfast you know that that was may 69 so that was my introduction I think there was five or six of the Lisbon Lions playing. And on the bench was Kenny Dalgleish, Lou McCary, Danny McGrain, Vic Davison. You know, I mean, it was incredible, you know. You know, it was an incredible team when you think of it, you know. It was rain talk when you went to Dublin. Like, was the, yeah. Was the troubles on the agenda then? You know, Yeah, I can remember. Was the talk with the Rovers fans? Or... I can't recall that day. The following year when we played Waterford in the European Cup, I remember when we went down on an early train and when we were drinking a bit then and we're in, in a pub and with great crack with a lot of the old guys, you know, one of the city centre pubs and the, and things were kicking off, obviously, in the north and uh, and they, they were interested in, in, in talking to us as well, you know. And, you know, coincidentally, four of us, as you do, um, obviously everybody knows there was a lack of uh, hardware at that stage and, so, and a lot of people, the Irish Army used to, it used to be a two-year recruit or uh, training, but uh, because of the trouble starting, they wanted to recruit, build up the the Army uh, numbers. So they brought the training down to six months. So a lot of people actually headed down from Belfast and Derry to join the Irish Army. And the plan, and four of us, 
did that one weekend, landed down. The army recruiting office was closed, but the, the guy in the, he invaded us in, and there we were sitting in Collins Barracks with some of the head army guys. And they were quizzing us. They hadn't a clue. And they were, what's it like in Belfast? And these were head army guys, you know. They says, uh, if you wait till Monday, we'll get you signed up. The, the plan was a bit mad, I suppose, was to do the six months and steal the FN and head back to Belfast. But, <laughs> we did. but you know, um, as you do, we, we didn't. Anyway, we headed back to Belfast, and, and, and that was the end of that escapade. But, but that was, that was uh, yeah, six, yeah. So 69, we'd seen Rovers. Then August 69, I'd recruited a whole batch of the guys into our FINA unit. And um, the and then August 69 arrived, you know, and I don't know where you want to go straight into that. or I do want to talk about it, but yeah. I, well, I want you to talk about it, but I do, I'm just trying to get a picture for those early years. So you, you'd been to Waterford. You know, you've got, you've got relatives in Scotland. You did go over in, in 70 for the Leeds game. I went over in November 69 for the Benfica game. It was my first game in Glasgow. I went to Aldergrove. I mean, this was all after August 69. Everything was mad. But then it's sort of what uh, General Phelan was the Brit commander, called it the honeymoon period for six months. And actually the only trouble was with loyalists who, who killed the first RUC man in the Shankill in October. And, uh, and um, there was really no trouble in, in nationalist areas really from... August 69 until Easter 70 in the Ballymurphy Red. So that, that's, there was a sort of a lull. And I went over um, in between periods because, you know, I hadn't grew up a Celtic supporter, but I was meeting my Scottish, my Clyde Bank cousins every summer at the Uncle's Bar and we'd work in the, in the bar there and we'd be in the, you know, a couple of months in Donegal. And so they, obviously after Lisbon, you know, and I mean, obviously we'd seen Lisbon. And so they're telling me, you know, and in our, we, our sort of small world, I was probably saying, you know, Torn were a great team because, you know, the, the Drew of Benfica, the first round the year Benfica got beat by United in the final in 68. So they had a decent team and nearly all their players went to England. But obviously, you know, when you're... T- so the cousins were telling me about Celtic and obviously you're talking about a different level. And, you know, they sort of, in the sense, come over. They booked the flight, uh... I was only earning a fiver a week, and uh, I think the flight was a fiver. I can't remember, and um, and uh, it's probably dear, really, when you think now, Ryanair, you could go to anywhere in Europe for for twenty euros. But, I, I, I'd love to know, go anywhere if I was allowed. I know, but uh, they invited me over and uh, booked the flight. Went up to Aldergrove, and there was fog in Aldergrove, and we were at a ten o'clock, uh, ten a.m. flight. There was fog till about four o'clock. Every flight was delayed, so there was hundreds and hundreds of Celtic supporters arriving for every flight. Of course, you know, everybody had a few aperitifs at the bar and people were getting were getting jolly. But it came to about four o'clock. We were getting worried, but the fog lifted and they got us on to the flight. But the fog shifted to Glasgow. The flight went to Edinburgh. The plan was that I was supposed to go to Clyde Bank because it would be over early to the aunts and my uncle would take me to the match. The flight was diverted to Edinburgh. We got to put us in a coach into Glasgow. I met uh, a priest and a couple of big guys from Ballymena, big farmers, and uh, they said, sure, come with us, son. I asked him which way to Clay Bank. They said, you'll never make Clay Bank. Come with us and we'll get something to eat, which we did, and we got a taxi to Parkhead. The priest says, uh, I'm sure the guys are all dead now. The priest says, just stay close to us, son, you know. And, of course, I got out of the taxi. There was nearly 80,000 
I just turned around and I was lost. Made my way into the to the Rangers end, as they used to call it. And it was about five to eight. And I made my way then round past the jungle, round to the Celtic end. And I was up above the nets in the Celtic end. And Tommy Gamble scored a 30-yarder after two minutes. And the place just went crazy. And there was a wee old Scottish guy with a bottle of whiskey beside me. And he says, when I chat to him, and he says, you're Irish. He said, get a drop of that under your son. And I knew I had arrived. I just knew this this was my place, you know. It was, And the one 3 nil, Harry Hood and uh, Willie Wallace. And, uh, I mean, the place was bouncing, you know, like it did in them days. And I came out. I, I still didn't know where Clyde Bank was. <laughs> I got on to the first bus. I got on to the first bus. I said, park dead. I could have got on and I could have ended up in Kilmarnock. But I, I ended up in the city centre and somebody told me to where I would get a bus to Clyde Bank. Still, I knew the answer address and it says to the conductor, Glasgow Road. Yeah, he says, son, Glasgow Road stretches for about 10 miles from oh, Glasgow to Clyde Bank. He says, what address? And you know, it's still a Glasgow, Clyde Bank, still a small place as well. He says, what's the address? I says, 204. He says, I know where it is. I'll drop you off. Amazing. This well, was about 11 o'clock at night. The aunts and uncle... And my cousin did give up hope. I'm knocking on, it was wet night. I'm knocking on the on the, the door, which I thought was the front door, but it was actually, I think they called it the close. You know, it was the entry sort of into the, so it happened, to, I was getting a wee bit wet, but I happened to lean against it. The door pushed open and went in and there was 204. And there was mommy's sister and a big hug and they had the tea and the, the scotch rolls and, um, and, uh, we had a chat and then they put me to bed and I remember they had a big green and white teddy bear on the bed and a jar, you know, and it was wonderful, you know, it was, uh, it was great, you know, and sure, you don't, you don't forget these things, you know. Wonderful memories and, and what, what sticks out is the camaraderie from the boys from Balamina and the priest and then oh, it was, it was the great, old yeah. gentleman giving you the bottle of whiskey and that's right. The bus right. driver's hospitality. You, you yeah. And the old guy, the old guy at the Madden, he must have been in his 70s, and he says, well, you're from Ireland, you know, I can't do the Scottish accent, you're from Ireland and all, you know. And he says, if they send that fucker, maybe shouldn't curse on your show. If you, send that effort, if you send that effort, Paisley over here, we'll fucking sort him out. <laughs> I can remember him saying that, you know. But, uh, so that yeah, was great, great memories, you know. Yeah, and you, you, you mentioned uh, um, the Paisley, and uh, can I, uh, let's come back from Glasgow and back into yeah. the, the early 70s in Belfast. You know, you're a young man, you're walking, you've joined uh, the Republican movement, yeah. the troubles are, are, are kicking off. You've found this love now of Celtic. You're enjoying a few beers, like like most lads your age. But yet you have this backdrop of what's going on in, in the North. I was born in 1971, so the first time I was aware of anything was 1981 when I seen the posters of the hunger strikers up and then those okay. that were running for the doll. So I remember asking my brother what it was and he told me, and I live in a big council estate and there used to be uh, processions at night, a candlelit processions during the hunger strike. So that was the first time I was aware of anything really. So when I was born, you were in the height of it. So can yeah. you just take me and the listeners back to those early years before, and you know, I, I don't want to say before you went to prison, I'd like you to tell us how it happened and how it seems so different that you can have, you know, everything that, you know, a young person enjoys growing up, a few beers, you're yeah. full, but the backdrop is just not normal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to be honest, 
when you reflect back on it, it wasn't normal. I mean, you know, we were only 15, 16, 17. And also, I always think, and I've talked, I've given I've give talks in university, but there was no trouble from for 50 years, more or less, you know, really since partition. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, within 12 months, we're in the the midst of of a, an armed struggle to to use the the term. I mean, we were involved. You know, we were training in the background. It was a confusing time. I mean, the IRA split. You know, Sinn Fein split. The army were new to the situation. You know, the the army are young kids from probably from Easter House and Toxteth and all these tough working class areas in the UK, and they're probably really. No, and I've talked to British soldiers and ex-British soldiers over the years. They were probably no different than ourselves. A lot of them would meet these Scottish Royal Scots and King's Own Scottish Borders, and uh, you know they'd be pulling you in along the street as they did, and just you know just pull you in, mess you about a wee bit. But maybe somebody would have a Celtic scarf on, and one of the soldiers would say, "I don't understand." He says, "I'm I'm a Celtic supporter. Like what what what's wrong?" And we're saying, "It's, it's that bloody uniform you've on you." And this is in the early days when you could you know before it got too serious, but. Uh, Easter 1970 really was the end of the, I suppose, that honeymoon period. There was a whole week of riots in Ballymurphy. And to be honest, in the background, the riots were training. They nearly didn't want the riots going on because it was bringing the Brits into the areas that they didn't want, that the training was going on. So, But it went on for a week and it uh, was the first time and they were firing the lob and the gas in on top of us and there was thousands out rioting and uh, you know, they built a wee temporary RUC station because the first six months that that sort of uh, disbanded the B specials and the reform in the RUC and they were going to leave them on iron. That was the sort of the, the theory. But And they took over a house in New Barnsley, which faces Ballymurphy just down from Turk Lodge. And it was a small RUC station, supposed to be a community police station. So this particular day in, in 1970, the New Barnsley was actually mixed before the Troubles. And they had an orange lodge who marched out of the estate, going to meet up with a bigger parade down the town. And they, they weren't attacked, but everybody had gathered. And once the parade headed off, they were told, you'll never, you'll never walk back. And uh, the WeRUC station was attacked. And uh, we thought that uh, the, the policemen had bailed out the back and were gone. And the RUC station was wrecked. And then further down was the Henry Taggart, which was a school that the army took over. But in the end days, they hadn't even got, they hadn't, it was just a wee low wall. And so the doors of that place was kicked in and there's a load of soldiers all lying sleeping and everything. So they jumped up and pulled on trousers and there was jeeps stolen and burnt. And But they came out in full-scale riot and plastics and gas. And then it went down, um, it moved down, uh, a big mate of mine, Paddy Smith, who were riding down the Springfield. He was hit with a rubber bullet. And then it moved to Ardoin and then it moved to Short Strand and you had, what became the famous Battle of St. Matthews where the Loyalists attacked it. And, uh, you know, it was nearly a bit like, I was just reading the last day about in uh, Lebanon when the Israelis allowed the Phalanges, the right-wing crowd in Lebanon, and they went into the the refugee camps and they slaughtered 3,000 and the Yanks stayed back. But that day in St. Matthews, the Brits stayed away from St. Matthews. The Loyalists led an onslaught. But the Ra and it was probably their first engagement, sent a unit in and they defended it. And there were six loyalists killed and one one uh, IRA auxiliary volunteer. But that was nearly the first real statement from the RA that, that August 69 was never going to happen again, you know. And uh, 
you know, it went on from there. Then we were training. There was rioting nearly. I mean, a normal day in our in our estate and every Ballymurphy, you know, the lower falls, the Brits would come in maybe 50 in a foot patrol. And the first thing, the dogs are barking, the women are out with the bin lids. Then the riots start, you know. It was still early days. There wasn't a lot of shooting at that stage until maybe February 71 when it really kicked off. But but that's the way it was. Every day there was a riot, you know. It was just for us, I suppose, really, we're still growing up. But that that was our life, you know. We, we really didn't know anything else. And and also it felt, and they, and they never understand it, I suppose. A lot of people down here don't get it, politicians especially. It was a whole community effort. I mean... I mean, everybody was involved and there would be over the next 10 and 20 years. And, you know, as it became known as the Long War, the RAD could never have survived unless they had this massive support. And I mean, I, everybody, and I mean everybody, I'm not saying they supported violence or they wanted anything like that, but if they seen a guy running down the street with a rifle and a soldier after him, they'd open their door and let him in and out the back door and away, or they'd keep gear or they'd keep men that were on the run. or And that was a whole community effort. And... All over Ireland, there was people who, who, you know, in farmhouses and whatnot and who kept men on the run and kept gear. And and that's something that really people don't, you know, when you read our souls like Owen Harris and Ruth Dudley Edwards, I know there are exceptions. I mean, you read the sort of stuff that they spout out in the endo, you know, it's, 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 you know, totally false, totally false uh, ideas of what it was like, you know. And then, as we said, you're a member of the Republican movement young lad, thought of them riots, you know, you get active and then, of course, you get lifted. Yeah. How violent is it when you're lifted as, as, a, as a Republican prisoner? Well, I'd been interned, first of all, um, in New Year's Eve, 71, and the King's Own Scottish Borders kicked in the door. They didn't tap on the door, you know, and, and they came up the stairs and this, this wee soldier says, uh, Patrick McManaman and... My dad, you know, my dad was a civil guy, you know, um, soft-spoken guy, never drank. And uh, he says, I'm Patrick McManaman and the wee soldier's dragging him down the stairs. But the intelligence officer was at the bottom of the stairs. And he says, not the old man, you stupid. He says, it's the young guy. So the back up again. And I was tempted to jump out the back window, but there was a half a dozen of them in the back garden. Um, took me to Hollywood Interrogation Center, which had a fearsome reputation coming out of it. I tell somebody, I don't talk to many of the boys about this in the golf club, but a few of the guys who I would trust not, um, but I told them I wasn't going to golf Hollywood to play golf with Rory's dad, you know. So I was in uh, Hollywood barracks. I was there for three days. To be honest, it was a bit terrifying as an 18-year-old. They didn't. Now, some guys got serious ill treatment. Uh, you know, I mean, I can say I didn't. I was bothered about, as they do, you know, but, I mean, I, I knew just to keep my mouth shut you know, for, for 48 hours or 72 hours. And, it, you know, I could get out or at worst, I, I would go to the internment camp. And But, I mean, you know, you're sitting for 48 hours looking at a white wall with little dots in the wall and, you know, the modern language sensory deprivation. They wouldn't let you sleep at night. You're up all night. Then they're taking you out at three in the morning for an, an interrogation. You know, a couple of special branch guys and they're slapping you about a bit, throwing me. I mean... I mean, to be honest, you know, at that stage, you know, what, what an 18-year-old volunteer knew, I always think, and I always feel for guys who, you know, guys in later years that maybe were, were shot as informers and stuff, 
And I always wonder about it, that, I mean, what the hell does an 18-year-old volunteer really know? You know what I mean? And, and, and that's, another, that's another issue, like, you know, which maybe... But anyway, I surveyed the 48 hours. At one stage, there were toilets outside. It was in a sort of a... It was part of their camp. It's, uh, I think it's now, it's the headquarters of the MI5, I think. And uh, it's in leafy Hollywood, where Rory comes from. And, uh, but there, it was, the, it was the base for one para. And uh, but the toilets were outside, and it was raining. I remember, and the branch man said to me, I'm not getting wet. The toilet's there. He pointed over. And as I walked over, I looked around, and he, it sort of looked back in. And the wee corrugated iron fence wasn't that high, I thought. And for a couple of seconds, you know, I thought, geez, I could get over this. But anyway, the moment passed. But ironically, a few months later, another guy did. He did. He, he bailed over the wire fence and he went down and he, and he thumbed a lift and he, got, and he got back to West Belfast and got away, you know. And there were the sort of things that happened at that time. In the early days, everybody was sort of a bit innocent. And, I mean, the, the escapes became, I mean, escapes became famous. All sorts of people just took chances and security probably wasn't as tight as it would be later. And, but anyway, I got through the, it was about two and a half days, I think. And then they presented me with the internment order signed by Brian Faulkner, the PM, and they threw me into the branch man in the car and took me to the Maidstone, which was a prison ship in Belfast Lock. It had uh, been in Malta during the war. And um, so there was about 700 soldiers stationed on that. And then at one, the, one end of the camp, or one end of the ship, they made an internment centre. And there was about 300 of us then. Um, Jerry Adams was there, Joe McDonnell few guys from our place, uh, guys from everywhere, you know, um, old guys who had been interned in the 40s and the 50s. Um, lots of us, our age group, uh, the new, suppose, new Republicans, to put it that way. Um, and we were on the Maidstone for a while. Then they took us to McGilligan, which was another camp uh, near Derry. And we were there when Stormont fell. And then the next thing was uh, they took us by helicopter, um, to the cage, and um, we flew to the helicopter. Um, three or four of us uh, flew, about a hundred of us, and, and we're in the cage. And uh, but storming had fell, and then there was the coming into the first ceasefire, and they started release. Part of the deal was to release internees, so they started releasing us in batches of a dozen. And the screw would just come to to the to the cage and shout in the names, and and so that was Ofsky. You know, I got out big hack. Actually, it was in the next cage, next cage. He, he was a member of the official movement, you know, but we were good friends, you know, and, and uh, we have over and he was released the next week. How long from the night you were, you were lifted? How long yeah. were you in for? Oh, that was, only, that was only six months or whatever, and then they were releasing us, you know. Now, Paddy, just, just for younger listeners, can you just, because we had the anniversary of internment, can you just yeah. briefly just tell people what internment was? Yeah, I mean, internment is essentially, it's imprisonment without trial. I suppose that's the exact definition. Um, it doesn't happen many places in the world. It definitely doesn't happen in democracies. Um, but you could never class the six counties as a real democracy. The Stormont government used internment in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. And even in August 69, they interned some Republicans as it kicked off. And then they brought it in in the 70s before it finally it ended with a ceasefire in 75. So they'd used internment every decade from partition. Uh, P.W. Vorts, the South African Prime Minister one time, said if Stormont gave him just 
I think it was Section 22, which was internment. He said he would never had trouble with Nelson Mandela. You know, it was an amazing, uh, you know, just one section of, of the Stormont Laws. So that's what internment was. And, you know, you were just, you were through in the guys in the 40s were in the whole time off the, and we might as well say internment was used in the Republic as well by the Fianna Fáil government mostly. And during the war years, people were, Republicans were interned in the Republic and the Curra in Cromwell Road Jail in the north. In the 50s, the same, when the when that uh, border campaign was going on, they were interned on both sides. And in 71, the, the British government asked the Irish government to bring in internment again simultaneously. But, I mean, times were different. I mean, there was a groundswell of support, you know, for republicanism and, and, and for what was happening in the Irish government had enough cop on to realise, no, this this could work against us. We can't bring in internment, you know. Yeah, my wife's uh, my wife's grandfather, a late grandfather, he was interned in the Curra. So I, I, I okay, yeah. about the, the, the Fianna Fáil government in, in, interning their own people. Um, Paddy, you're out then. There's no time for football. There's no time for football. The last game I was at was before, um, I was at the Scottish Cup final in 71, at the replay in the... 108,000, I think. I think it was 120,000 at the first game. Blue McCarry was only a kid coming in and scored. I think Harry Hood won it with a penalty, 2-1. The Huns attacked us coming out of Hamden, my first experience. We were going up from Hamden up Mount Florida and they, they came after, like there was hundreds were running back towards us and we all bolted, but um, but that was the last uh, that was the last game I was at for 10 years, I suppose. Certainly no Glen Torren. No Glen Torren. I mean, uh, I wouldn't say I've always had a soft spot, but them, them couple of years were actually, were actually. Um, I, I always joke with the boys, you know, and I've written about it, that we were the first uh, cross community gig, and we didn't get the grants for it. <laughs> but um, no, that that was it for for a decade or more, actually. And uh, I mean, we're into '72, the first ceasefire, and I went down to Donegal for a few weeks. And you know, the ceasefire command. You know, it was uh, it was incredible. We were we were patrolling our areas. The Brits were supposed to stay out, but they landed in one day, and we met them. And uh, it was a bit awkward for a minute. We didn't know what was going to happen. And we said to them, you know, or, or one of the heads said, "You're not supposed to be in here." And, and uh, he phoned back to them, and he says, "Oh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Very polite, but been a been a Brit from Sandhurst, probably the, the sergeant." But that was it, and then the, the ceasefire went on, but it only lasted two weeks. I went down to the uncle's pub, and um, and then word came. Uh, I mean, it was probably unrealistic. I mean, the leadership gave the British government a list of demands, which included British withdrawal and and uh, immediately, and, you know, it wasn't going to happen at that stage. Then during the ceasefire, the loyalists went into overdrive because they thought there was a deal done. So they killed about 20 innocent Catholics, as you know, around the Shankle and whatnot. And that was putting pressure on the ceasefire. And then in Lenadoon, they were moving in Catholics in the sort of mixed area then. And the UDA blocked it and it developed into a riot. And then the guns came out. And, you know, in reflection, maybe, you know, there was a few trigger happy guys on our side as well, you know, and. Anyway, it was a major gun battle in Lenadoon, and the next thing the ceasefire was announced over. Uh, 
I said to my uncles, you know, I need to go back and they wouldn't have been very sympathetic to anything like this. Or to be honest, if the truth, they weren't really political. No, no. I mean, even to this day, I don't. They're all nearly dead now, except one aunt and Clay Bank. And I've never heard which side of the Civil War they were on, or they never talked about politics. But I, I gathered that there may have been a wee tint of blue in their makeup, you know, that they may have been blue shorts, you know. But so they said to me, "Don't go back to Belfast. You'll be arrested in two weeks." And uh, and I beat their 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 um, their prediction by twenty four hours because I was lifted thirteen days later. You know. Now I must add in that the lifespan of an IRA volunteer in the summer of nineteen seventy two was about three months. So I was par for the course, probably. You know. So less than two weeks back in Belfast on on your yeah. They uh, well they brought in we had Bloody Friday the following week, which was a disaster. You know, I mean. 20 bombs in the city centre, you know, I mean, it's, it, uh, you know, and the next thing the Brits then come in, give them the chance, because you had free dairy in the barricades and you had barricades all across nationalist areas in Belfast, the UDA and the UVF had barricades and loyalist areas. So that this gave them the best excuse of all to move in. So they, they moved in Operation Motorman. They had 30,000 troops. They brought in these big Centurion tanks. I mean, it was incredible to see them rolling. You get them on YouTube, you see them rolling in through the bog set. And obviously, you know, the leadership got word that it was going to happen. So they they made a sensible decision to back off, you know, not to not to oppose it and, and melt it away. So, you know, there was only there was two volunteers killed in Derry, I think. But it was a week after that then and um and things were back to normal and and uh I suppose we were on an operation, me and two other guys, and the the paras were in uh, one para were in in Turf Lodge, and I'm not really talking out of turn or loose talk or such as they call because it it's, it's it's all it's all down in paper anyway, and it's 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 a long time ago. But yeah, we we planted a bomb for for a foot patrol. Unfortunately, the foot patrol seen us first, and we went to make a Johnny Barnes. The third guy had just left us to get cigarettes, I think, and he walked into him, but he got away. And I think to this day, nobody ever seen him since. <laughs> I'm a bit facetious there now, but he, he um, his his days in the war were over anyway. Uh, Johnny and me then went to make a run, but you know they had the rifles on us. If it probably had him in ten years later, they would have shot us dead, you know, and not ask not ask questions. They um, jumped over the the fence of the garden and they had us spread eagled on the ground, took off her shoes or battering us with the rifle butts, kicking us and phoning for reinforcements to come. But hundreds of people gathered and a riot started all around us. And it was a bit crazy. And uh, and Johnny, even at one stage, we were head to head and Johnny whispered me. Johnny was a civil guy. And uh, Johnny whispered me, oh, fuck this. And he, he sort of made an effort to jump up the escape. Now, there was nowhere, there was about a hundred paras around us. And uh, the battered, the battered hellered him down to the ground again, you know. And uh, and I just mentioned it because um, we lost Johnny about two months ago. I hadn't seen him for a long, long time. He had early dementia and he was in a nursing home and he got whacked with COVID and he died about his daughter contacted me and and. He died the following week, you know. So it's you know it's a sad, sad time. You know, a guy that I spent the six years with, with you know, and caught with, 
and uh, you know, sail away, you know. But um, yeah, so they took us in, they put us into the Saracen, you know, the big armored cars, the peg they called them the Saracen. You know, I'm not in any way a tough guy when I get to her or bravado or any of that stuff. Um, but I'm not a shrinking valid either, but I can tell you, uh, for the 20 minutes that drove us to the army camp, I was scared shitless. I was in the in this pig, this armored car with 10 paratroopers who they're after catching me and I was going to maybe inflict serious injury on them. And, you know, they're, they're, they're attempting to stick the the muzzle of a, of a, of a, the rifle up your arse or batting you around the head and threatening you. And you nearly couldn't blame them, you know, but it was a frightening run to the army camp. We got to the army camp. It was in Spring Martin. It was surrounded by a loyalist area. They were cheering. As they were taking us in, they were threatening, um, we'll throw you to the loyalists, you know, and that'll be the end of you. But they didn't. Anyway, thankfully, they took us in. The first guy I met was the intelligence officer. He hit me a slap around the head, and I had been lifted the week before for 10 hours or something. And he said to me, I thought, you wee fucker, I thought you told me you were finished with all this nonsense. And uh, there wasn't much of an interrogation. I mean, they had us caught, and uh, they took us to Crumlin Road Jail and into court in the morning, charged with possession of the bomb and attempted murder. And we first went to the cache for a month or so, and the first night we were in, didn't a riot develop in cage six? And um, over something, something trivial, you know, and we refused to be locked up. You know, I think it was over a boiler wasn't working for the tea. You know, it was something. But this, the screws, the warders sent the army and the command, gave us a bit of a pattern. But uh, then they moved us back to the crumb to be close because I don't know where you know, a crumbling road, the jail's on one side and there's an underground tunnel. And then you have the courthouse, which is derelict now, which I think they're talking about. They've turned the jail and the museum and I think they're talking about doing something with the courthouse. But I mean... People have been going through that tunnel, like it's living history. That underground tunnel goes under the Crumlin Road. I mean, people have gone through there since since uh, Wolf Tone's time in seventeen ninety eight, or you know the, the Fenians in the eighteen sixties. You know the nineteen sixteen people and all uh, have been going through that tunnel. So it's a, it's a bit of history in itself, you know. But we were there in the Crumlin until her until her trial date, and. Uh, you know, we went in front of this impartial Catholic Unionist judge who, um, you know, we sort of didn't show the best of respect. We threw our deposition papers at him and sat down and turned our backs to him. And he threatened to give us five years even, bef- even before the trial started for, um, you know, what we were doing, you know. But yeah, that was it. And then the, the trial went ahead, you know. I think you'll all agree Paddy's story is fascinating to listen to. And we will bring you part two on Tuesday's podcast. Now, thanks for listening again, folks. We hope you're enjoying the podcast as much as we are producing it. Thanks also for your continued support on the website and of the fanzine. So, how can you support us? Well, for the price of a point, you can donate if you're enjoying the podcasts. You can also subscribe to the digital magazine or the print magazine from $5.99. Our merchandise starts at 5 quid, And we also have a new members area. And the membership starts from $7.99. If you click into the website, all the details of how you can support us are there. As always, thanks to our wonderful producer, Ronan McQuillan, and for his patience with me when we're recording. 
the podcast is available on all platforms so don't forget to hit the subscribe or follow buttons and you'll never miss an episode alternatively you can visit our website selicfanzine.com forward slash podcast forward slash where you will find every episode please follow us on social media more than 90 minutes is on facebook instagram and twitter thanks again to our sponsor murray and son culture the league if your business or Celtic supporters club would like to sponsor an episode or advertising the fans in or on the website, please get in contact. You can email us at info at CelticFanzine.com or you can also contact us now on the homepage of the fanzine. Keep the comments coming in and let us know your story or who you would like us to chat to on the show. We are following up on all the suggestions by our listeners and we, I think we're getting a good broad range of guests on the show who all have a passion for Celtic. The next episode, episode 21, will be out on Tuesday and we will have the second part of the Paddy McMenamin interview. Folks, enjoy your weekend. As always, if you're out for a point, stay safe. If you're out for a bite to eat, enjoy it. I'll be heading just up the road to see a few friends for a few social distance drinks over the weekend and I'm looking forward to getting back in and getting on to the new issue of the fanzine on Monday. Hail, hail, folks. Keep the faith and stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 